Welcome. Welcome in to Sports Talk Chicago. All gas, no brakes. If you're looking for the same old sports talk, get out. You've come to the wrong place. Hey, we ain't come this far just to come this far, you hear me? I tell you what I see, I tell you the truth. We going hard today. We're fearless, bold, and highly opinionated. This here show. This show is so hot right now. The biggest guests, the hottest takes, and the best interviews live right here. Do you actually remind me of Dan Patrick? Because you ask great questions, you have the knack, you have the gift. On Sports Talk Chicago. Yo, Chicago. Here's your host. The guy's an absolute stud. John Zagul. Hi, everybody. Welcome into Sports Talk Chicago. My name's John Zagul. John Benos is here directing and producing. We're presented by our good sponsors, Amish Country Farms. We're live right now on YouTube, Twitch, and Facebook at Sports Talk Chicago. You can follow me personally at John Z Sports all over the internet. We have a huge guest to open up today's program. He's a three-time Pro Bowler, NFL legend, the founder of Extreme or Lights Out Extreme Fighting. Big guest here with us tonight. It's Sean Merriman. Sean, great to see you. How are you doing? I'm doing well, man. How about yourself? I'm doing great. Thank you for being here. Um, I'm curious, how you get the nickname Lights Out? How did that come up? <laughs> man, uh, my sophomore year uh, in high school, actually, I knocked out uh, four guys, four kids in one game. <laughs> so who came up, who coined the term? Was it your coach, you know, a parent, a friend? Yeah, man. Actually, I ran for the game. I had 20 students come run up to me saying, you knocked those guys' lights out. And uh, that name kind of stuck with me all the way through. And I was going to say, that is such a smart way then to name your fighting league that, to name it Lights Out. I think that's such just a smart thing to do. How did that league come up? Well, you know, I started I started to train uh, during my off seasons and uh, between 2005 and 2006. And uh, I, I just wanted to help my hand-eye coordination in football, you know, just get better at football, right? Being an outside linebacker and pass rusher, being able to use your hands and whatnot. Um, and I just started to do it every single offseason, I, and I got really good at it. So uh, in 2018, um, I launched Lights Out Extreme Fighting. Or t- sorry, 2019, I launched Lights Out Extreme Fighting. Uh, as you said, we're now on Fubo Sports, Fubo TV. Um, so now everybody can see us. Not only in in in, uh, in the U.S. but Canada, France, and some parts of Spain. Uh, so it, it's been, you know what? It's um, if you talk to any any former athlete about what they miss about the game, and say they'll the first thing they'll say they'll, they'll they miss a locker room, right? They miss being around the guys. They miss being competitive. So for me, it's almost like therapy to be around these uh, fighters because they like they love to get after. They talking trash all the time and. Uh, fortunately enough, I built up a big enough platform where I can get behind these guys, promote them, because we got the next up-and-coming, like, great superstars. What's been the most rewarding part of starting this thing from scratch and having it grow to where it is now? Um, the viewership, to be honest. Uh, we had a fight January 14th. We broke into football sports uh, top 10 most watched all time. And so um, I, I'm, I'm a – if you follow me on social media, I'm always talking back and forth to the fans, Raiders fans. Every, I'm talking crap, talking, you know, retweeting, reposting, going back and forth, because I, I truly believe that the, the fans drive everything we do, right? And if you listen to them, if you hear them, they'll tell you if they like something, they'll tell you if they don't. Um, so with that being said, um, you know, we got high, high viewership numbers like that, and people are coming, and you have, you know, all, all of our GAs are sold out, and half of our case side are sold out, and we're three weeks away from the fight. You know, we'll have over a thousand people in there, um, and so for me, that'll that's that's really cool because it tells me a lot. You know, that people like what we're doing. 
what should we expect from the fight on the 6th? Uh, organized violence. <laughs> you know, uh, we, we got, you know, we got about four, we got about four guys, I think on this card that, um, probably one, one or two fights with us and done maybe the UFC or so. Um, and they, they're up and coming superstar. One, one guy in particular, Julian Duckinfield, um, we played full, we played football in college in Fullington, uh, Fullerton. And this guy still has that explosiveness of a like a football player, an athlete, and that like his hand. I mean, he, he might have dynamite in his hands. This guy's like next level. Uh, trying to get uh, Ryan Lilly back on his card. He's fought for us a couple of times. Uh, been around for a long time. So for me, even though I have you know great matchmakers, I have great production operations guys and all that stuff. I'll get into certain parts to like okay, I know because I train and been around a lot of these guys for a long time, so I can kind of you know, look at certain things and, and know what people want. So how do you feel when you lose a fighter to the UFC? Is that a successful thing for you? Does it hurt because you might lose viewership or you lose fans? No, not really. Um, you know, for us, look, I, I played at University of Maryland, right? That's like uh, like me wanting to stay at University of Maryland my whole entire career, never have an opportunity to play in the NFL. So ultimately, I know that's the goal for some of these guys, which is cool. Um, I think what makes us a little bit different is um, – the fighters, they want to come and fight there because they know that everybody's watching, right? The viewership, the social media, um, our ability to promote and production and, and and just, you know, do things to elevate the fighters and give them an opportunity to prolong their career. Some of these guys just want to stay with us and, you know, stay with us for a while. And if they get the opportunity, great. If not, great. And they want to just stay active and keep fighting. So, um, you know, to see some of the guys who want to go to UFC and, and have that opportunity, is, it's cool. Got NFL legend Sean Merriman here with us on Sports Talk Chicago. I'm John Zaglul. John Meadows is directing and producing here tonight. Sean, wanted to talk some Chargers with you. How'd you feel about their season this past year? Good year, but that end result was certainly tough. Yeah, you hit it right on the right on the head. That that end was was a, a gut punch to all the former Chargers and, and and Chargers fans, and you hate to see them go out like that because you know they're they're a much better team. Um, the way they were slamming on the gas the first half, and and you know you everybody. I mean, I, hell, I, I even turned the TV, uh, you know, in and out, right? And I was popping off, and uh, I turned it back, and the score, and I turned it back, and the score, and I'm like, okay, something's going on here. Um, but I think that what the Chargers did this offseason uh, in the making a, uh, the coaching acquisition of of Kellen Moore uh, has been the biggest move of their entire uh, you know coaching staff across the league. And I say this because he's walking into a, a, a locker room with a Justin Herbert, right? A Austin Eckler in the backfield and Mike Williams and Keenan Allen and Everett Palmer, who, who came on and had a, had a really good year. So you give him those weapons and his style of play and, and being able to slam on the gas and, and, and ability to use everybody in every position, get everybody to the ball, um, they're going to be dangerous. You know, they start playing well on the defense side of the ball. The defensive line started playing well the last four or five games of the year. I think they finished somewhere in the top five or top seven in defense um, towards the end of the year. So they're going to come out firing off. I'm, I'm really excited about what they're what they're capable of doing this year. Do you buy Justin Herbert as the quarterback of the future for this team? Yeah, no doubt about it. This dude's a, he's a quiet, he's, you know, it's funny being around him because he's so quiet. He comes across as humble, but you can also tell like that, um, that confidence without him saying much. He's, he's there. He know he knows he's good. Um, he's a great leader. Guys respect the hell out of him. And he always seemed to keep his composure. You know, you, you never really see him where the game or the moment is too big for him. 
And that's even before you start talking about his physical attributes and, and what he can do with the football and how big his arm is and what his capabilities are, the way he moves. I mean, I remember meeting this meeting this guy, him walking up to me. I didn't realize he was six seven, right? And I'm, I kind of <laughs> caught myself like, you know, I'm six six, almost six five, and I kind of caught myself looking up just a slight tad bit, and I said, okay, this is a this is a different beast we're dealing with here. But um, anyway, great quarterback, and I think he's going to do uh, wonders for that team. How confident are you in Brandon Staley and his leadership moving forward? That's to me, that's his biggest quality is his leadership. Now, I, I know that you know some people out there are going to say, "Oh, they question his, you know, play calling ability or his risk taking or whatever." But I can tell you one thing about Brandon Staley, man. He's a he's a great leader of that team. Um, and, and in my opinion, I don't know because I wasn't at the wasn't at the uh, meetings when they when they were talking about coaches and whatnot. In my opinion, that's why they kept him there. Right. I think he just needed some help to open up that offense and, and really let those guys go, because there were certain points in times last year where I'm like, dude, I mean, Mike Williams is open. This guy's open. And why, you know, why are we you know, dumping it off to Eckler when this, you know, it's just I, I believe it's going to be a, um, a much different season and a more exciting season. How do you compare this Chargers team to your team from 2006 that went 14 and two? Is there a comparison? Well, you know, you can definitely hit a lot more. That's for sure. <laughs> Less rules. Uh, well, I, I okay. So obviously, you can't replace a guy like Ladanian, right? You no can't way. you can't compare that to anybody. You can't compare anybody to Antonio Gates and you know some of those teams that we had on the defense. But I think collectively, collectively, and what they have across the board of both offense and defense, and Joey Bosa, Khalil Mack. You know, um, you know, Murray is, is there, and Derwin. Collectively, across the board, they have a better chance of winning the Super Bowl than we did. Um, and the reason why I'm saying that is, is that the path other than Patrick Mahomes really to get there is a lot different. Like, they don't have to go through Tom Brady, right? Like, you know, we had Tom Brady. You know, so we it was a lot of – it was paths to, to get there. Um, and – it's wide open, I believe. Uh, you know, I, I don't think Kansas City is just going to be a lot walking into this season. Like the AFC is tough. You know, hell, even Jacksonville, man, Jacksonville at the, towards the end of that season, they started to, they started to really rally and play well. So they could be somebody that could just be a pain in your ass, like down the road. Um, so yeah, man, I, I really do think they got a shot. When you reflect on that 2006 season, what comes to mind for you? Um. It, you know, I don't really regret anything about my career. Certain things I wish I could have done different or maybe took care of my body a little bit more, sat out and not played hurt, just those little little teeny things. Um, but that 06 team we had, is was it should have gone down as like one of the best teams of the decade, you know, because we were just so stacked on in every position almost, and we were so dominant. And I think that's that's what separated us because we didn't just win games. We were dominating a lot of people. Um, and by a lot of points and sacks and turnovers, I think one year we finished up with like 65 sacks or something crazy on defense or somewhere in the 60s. And um, Wade Phillips and Greg Minuski and John Pagandri, if you look at that, uh, Marty Schottenheimer, just look at that staff alone and what came from that staff and how many uh, head coaches and defensive coordinators across the league so we, we were pretty uh, equipped and not to get a ring. That that one's always going to sting no matter what. Do you guys ever go back and forth and reminisce and say what you're kind of saying? Like, we should have gotten a ring. We should have done it that year. 
Uh, yeah, but you know, not often as you think. I think the the hardest part for me, you know, because I obviously you know, I go do shows or whatever, and you know, might go up the NFL Network or whatever. And I remember one time um, I was doing NFL Network and Willie McGinnis, Deion Sanders, and Marshall Falk and Irvin, I, and I'm on a panel. I think Kurt um, Kurt Warner. We were all on the same panel doing Total Access, and all I saw was ring, 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 ring. They all had rings. And so that right there, you know, that type of thing stung a little bit, right? Just to, because I'm so damn competitive and I want to, you know, want to go down as, you know, one of the best. And um, so, th- so that that part, yeah, absolutely. How did you end up leading the NFL in sacks and not play 16 games? Well, I was I probably should have had over 20, um, you know, 22 <laughs> sacks. Well, so my after my first year, I was I was terrible my rookie year at using my hands. I mean, I know I went to the Pro Bowl and all Pro and Defensive Rookie of the Year and all that stuff, but I was terrible using my hands because I was just so accustomed to being bigger, stronger, and faster than everybody else. So I just ran around you, I ran through you, or ran under you. But I didn't use my hands, so I started to do MMA, uh, which really allowed me to use my hands a lot more be active. I, I started getting very, very active and violent with my hands and chop clubs and pull guys and doing different things. Um, and then also too, man, when I got suspended, I had a chip on my shoulder. I was so dead. I was so pissed off. You know, um, I was notified of my suspension after the first game that I was going to get suspended. And so I had that in my head the whole season. I was just very, very like pissed off and wanted to go out there and make something big happen. And and that's how, you know, you get 17 sacks in 12 games. <laughs> a pissed off Sean Merriman, I guess. <laughs> How'd you feel about that suspension when it was handed down? That was a huge deal back at that time. It was huge um, because it could have went a couple of different ways. The NFL just had this strict policy on like, hey, you take anything outside of this on this ban list, that's it. No negotiating, no copping a plea, no getting out of this. You put it in your body, it's yours, boom, you're done. Um, and so that time was, was pretty, you know, was pretty rough for me because I actually thought that they were just going to find me for four games because they knew what happened. They all knew what happened. Um, and so when I went forward and I was playing and I just realized that there was no way around it, we actually picked the four games that I was going to be suspended. Um, we, we picked those four games and I accepted the four games because we had like Denver and, uh, the Bengals and (laughs) Cleveland, it was some teams that wasn't, wasn't good. So the coaches basically said, hey, we, we don't need you for these four games. Take these four games, right? And I said, okay, cool. Took my suspension, and that, that was that. Wow. And then what about the rest of your career? I mean, you had a very strong start, and things kind of broke down near the end. You got some injuries. Um, yeah. How do you blew, feel about the way your career ended? I blew my knee out. Um, I got hit in the Tennessee game. I was targeted in 2007. Right. Uh, so I blew my knee out, and then actually I came back from my knee. My knee wasn't really the problem. I, I lost a little bit, but not a whole lot. But the compensation of me blowing my Achilles out after that is is what got me. And so with me, I was all about explosion and being able to do things off the line of scrimmage. That was my game, you know, being 265 or 268, being able to jump, run, and, and do things that I did. And, and when my when I blew my Achilles out, it just wasn't the same anymore. So I came back. I played a couple of years in Buffalo. I played okay. Um, but when you do that, I, it was just no way. I was never going to be the same again. And that's ultimately, that that is why I retired. I said, you know what? I'm just, when you are used to winning in certain situations, you can't win like you did anymore. It, it is very frustrating. And uh, I had other opportunities to pursue. And that's that's when I, you know, end up going to just saying, and the Bills offered me a contract to come back. 
you know, they had they said, hey, you know, we'll give you another year, a two year deal. You come back. And I just said, that's it, man. I'm, you know, I'm done. I, I'm go, you know, TV and do lights out stuff. And that was it. How did you come to terms with it? Like, how did you feel knowing, OK, I'm walking away from the only game I've ever known? Well, the funny thing is, is that that the actual person, the athlete, is the last person to know you need to retire. Everybody else knows. <laughs> right. um, and so I think I got to a point where um, I remember watching film and I just did, I didn't look like myself. I didn't have that burst. I was slow changing directions because I couldn't push off like I used to. Um, and it was literally that. And so everybody else knew that I wasn't the same player, but mentally, like what makes us is that we're mentally stronger than the average person. Cause we, we, we got to deal with injuries and, you know, you got to be able to suck it up, right. When things happen. Um, and I was just like, you know what, that's it. I'm done. Because if I can't compete, if I can't dominate, then it's ultimately going to affect me more than I wanted to. And uh, I had some really good, some post career opportunities. I said, look, man, if, I don't have a slightly bigger deal somewhere to come back, then it's not worth it. I'm going to go and pursue all the things that I'm doing now. Lights Out Nine's coming up, Sean. Um, how can people watch it? How can people see it? I want to make sure we get that across, too. Make sure we plug it. Yeah, so uh, uh, May 6th, um, we'll be in Los Angeles, California, Lights Out Extreme Fighting Nine. Um, you can get your tickets at lightsoutxf.com. Lightsoutxf.com. For anybody that's seeing this or whatever, if you can't make the fight, you got to check us out on Fubo TV, Fubo Sports. If you don't have Fubo, get it. This will be our biggest card yet. Like I said, we got four up and comers on there that people need to see. These guys are going to throw down. Um, and it starts 4 p.m. Pacific. Sean Berriman still here with us on Sports Talk Chicago. Sean, a few more questions before we finish up. Who was your favorite teammate when you played in the NFL? <laughs> you know, we, we had um, we, we had a very, very tight-knit group, right? Like uh, – the quarterbacks didn't go sit with the quarterbacks. The running backs over the running backs. Like, no, Phillip Rivers would come and sit down in the middle of the linebacker, the defense alignment. Like, we had one of those teams. Um, but I would say Stephen Cooper and, and Sean Phillips were. We, they call us the three amigos. We were always together. Love Jamal Williams. Low Neal. Low Neal was probably one of my favorite. Lorenzo Neal is probably one of my favorite teammates. Probably the biggest character on the team. Um, LT, man, you know, you – Walking in the locker room, LT and Antonio Gates, I mean, it doesn't get much better than that as a 20. I just turned 21 years old, so it, it don't get much better than that one. I have a comment here from Steve Woodpark, and he asks you, what did Sean think of local product Larry English? So we're from Illinois. We're from the Chicago yeah. area. Larry came from here. Uh, did he think they could have been a great tandem if not for the injuries? So that's from Steve. What do you think about that? Yeah, well, they brought Larry in to replace me. Uh, <laughs> and, and so that's that's like my brother, man. That's that's little bro. Um, and so I think that um, Larry's he, you got you had to put him in position, right? Right. Uh, to do certain things, I think he would have made a great three headed monster by having us three on the field because he was very explosive and he was strong, um, and he had like a sh- a shorter build to him, but very very explosive and great leverage. And so I think that if they found a way, a package to bring Larry in and bring him along, uh, I think he would have had a, a much, much better career. What was the favorite team or favorite year of a team that you were on in the NFL? Is it 2006? Oh, uh, for sure. That to, that to me was the funnest year because how dominant we were. 
Um, I mean, I remember having a conversation with Marty Schottenheimer before the game, and he would literally tell other teams, tell just out loud what we're doing, what we're running. And he'd say, hey, it doesn't matter what, if they know what we're doing, it's can they stop it? If we had that attitude about us, um, the whole city of San Diego was on fire. And I think, I think nationally that put a lot of us on the map around that time, right? Like everybody knew about LT and Gates and, you know, I just started coming off my, my rookie year, but Luis Castillo started to come out there and Igor Shansky and Sean Phillips, people started to make a name for themselves because the country is watching. And Sean, before we finish up today, last question for you, this one might take some thinking. What's the funniest moment that you've been a part of in the NFL? Um, so we talked about the injuries and me coming back or, or whatever, and I wasn't, you know, wasn't playing the same, but, uh, we were playing the Raiders and I, and I felt, I started to feel it was after my, after my injury and I started to feel kind of decent. And, you know, LT told me that, uh, Hey man, you get three or four sacks this game. I'm gonna run on the field and dance. Right. And so I think I had one or two in the first half or something. And I was about on my way to a third. And uh, I look up right after the play, and the LT is like in the middle of the field doing like a lasso dance, right? <laughs> and and I got, they got a picture of it somewhere. And the, probably I, I'm never, I don't I'm not, I don't laugh during the game. I'm serious. I'm like in a whole different mentality, and I'm I'm somewhere else with it. I never laughed this hard playing football before in my life, and I was laughing so hard that my shield. I had to run to the sideline because I was crying. My sh- I couldn't <laughs> I couldn't see. It was tears, um, and so I think that that was probably the funniest thing that's ever happened um, football wise. Yeah, that I means just for, for one, it's LT, but two, um, <laughs> he actually said it. It was totally unexpected. You know, I was two sacks in of going on my third sack, and I just look up out the blue, and LT is literally halfway into the middle of the field. <laughs> during the game and I, I mean I could not stop laughing man it was the hardest the hardest time I've ever laughed before in my life on the field well Sean thank you so much for joining us amazing conversation uh best wishes with lights out and again for everybody who's watching who may not be able to make it gonna be on Fubo TV May 6th I think it's gonna be a great card and a great fight and Sean we appreciate you taking time out to join us here tonight you got it man thanks for having me on thank you so much that was Sean Merriman and this is John Zaglul. John Meadows here with you right here on Sports Talk Chicago. That was an awesome interview. Uh, Sean, how about that? Some really cool insights on the Chargers. Uh, what really shocked me, whole part of the interview, the fact that he said this Chargers team today is a better chance of winning the Super Bowl than that 2006 team. And that 2006 team, I mean, I remember. I was young, but I remember that team. That team was electric. You played them on Madden, you'd win every game. That's how I remember them. Madden 06, Madden 07, Madden 08, Vince Young in the cover. You'd play the 2006 Chargers, and you were guaranteed to win. Phillip Rivers, Sean Phillips, Sean, uh, uh, Sean Merriman, um, LaDainian Tomlinson, Antonio Gates. My goodness, what a team. And uh, that was so much fun. What a great time. I uh, want to make sure, again, we promo that event coming up May 6th, live on FUBU, lights out 9. So Sean, after his playing career, started up a... MMA league that kind of serves as a feeder league to the UFC. He's going to have a big card coming up there on May 6th on Fubo. So if you don't have Fubo and you want to watch the card, check him out. Um, If you're in the Los Angeles area, maybe some of you guys are, uh, tickets are still available. You can go and purchase them (laughs) and uh, check those out here today. 
We're presented by our good sponsor, Amish Country Farms, with the best Amish food in all of Chicagoland. Hit them up today in Orland Park. Uh, pie sales are over, but the fun still gets going over there. They are open. New summer hours are here every day, 9 to 7 p.m. So they're going to be open a lot. And if you need your Amish fix during the summer and you don't want to drive all the way over there during the heat or during work, you can go to Amish Country Farms in Orland Park. Check them out today and tell them Sports Talk Chicago sent you. Remember, you can follow us everywhere at John Z Sports. We're also live Twitter, uh, or rather Facebook, Twitch, and YouTube, all at Sports Talk Chicago. Um, again, big thank you to Sean Merriman. That was awesome. Uh, somebody I certainly watched growing up, and he was a great player. So great to have him on. Um, <clears throat> the show won't end. We're not cutting it this early tonight. We have at least, I'd say, 30 to 40 minutes. And there's been some Bears news. And that's how we're going to start out the rest of this program. Alert, alert. I'm like a football player now in the huddle. Alert, alert. There's some Bears news. I got this report that came out today in regards to Jalen Carter. Now, we did a report a couple of months ago now, actually, about Carter, you know, being arrested, the whole DUI thing, showed up to the combine overweight, 15 pounds, didn't even run a 40, couldn't even freaking do it. But now it turns out, according to reports, that the Bears still want Carter. Matt Miller of ESPN says, quote, the best intel I have on the Bears, I've heard defensive tackle Jalen Carter won't fall past their pick at number nine. They are said to value him highly. One AFC college scouting director said the Seahawks and the Lions also could take Carter in the top 10. Outside of the value, Carter would be a great fit in the middle of Chicago's defensive line. He'd be a true building block for Matt Eberflus's 4-3 defense. Look, here we go. Jalen Carter, on paper, is a talented player. And if there was no baggage or no 15 pounds overweight or no neglecting to run the 40 or showing up overweight, showing up not ready to go, I'd say, yes, the Bears should draft him, and he'd be a steal at number nine. And he still may be a steal, and I might be eating my words in two years, and that's fine. But there is something called morality. There is something called doing it the Bear way. Because the Bear way is a thing. There's a reason why the Bears didn't go after Deshaun Watson when he hit the open market, right? There's a reason why when there is controversy for the Bears, they avoided at all costs, they cut ties with the player. Remember Sam Hurd? Arrested for cocaine distribution. I remember that she just got out of prison actually recently. But the point is, the minute those charges came up, gone. Cut. You're out. The Bears are not <laughs> the Bears are not about controversy. The Bears are not about off-the-field antics and issues. They're a very straight-line organization, and that's why I like the Bears, for many other reasons, too. But they really don't tolerate nonsense off the field. you got to be a good person off the field. You have to show out, show up for the community, and be a good liaison, be a good ambassador for the team. Jalen Carter would be a horrendous ambassador for the team. He'd be horrible. He is talented, yes, but I'm not too interested in somebody who's 15 pounds overweight and who on top of it was irresponsibly but kind of responsibly involved in murder. <laughs> I mean, let's be real here. It was murder. Street racing somebody, they die, and now it's okay all of a sudden. I don't like this at all, and I don't think this corresponds with the Bears' way, and I'm not afraid to say that. I don't care if there's hatred or pushback. It's, it's the truth. There is a morality clause here, in my opinion. There is a morality clause. If I were GM, 
Even if he was talented, even if I looked like an idiot in five years, at least I know I could go to bed sleeping straight knowing I didn't take somebody who inadvertently slash kind of inadvertently killed somebody. Sorry. Not interested. But, according to reports, the Bears are very interested. And Seattle and Detroit could also take him, but if Carter is there at nine, they plan on taking Carter. I just, uh, I, I hated this story. I saw it come out today. I was so disappointed. I just didn't want to see this today. I really thought it was over for Carter, not just because of the whole arrest, which <laughs> in and of itself should make it over, but then on top of it, showing up overweight, not running the 40, but yet now we sit here today and all of a sudden this report comes up, the Bears are really in on him. Just two months ago, this same reporter and other reporters said, he's falling off the draft board. So which is it? How do you go from falling off draft boards to you're going to be the number nine pick, maybe even five or six to Seattle or Detroit? How could that narrative shift in a matter of two months? It was January when the arrest warrant was issued. We did a whole segment on it. Now it's April, ironically enough, two weeks before the draft, and he's out there. He's available. We're going to get him at nine. Okay. There's a morality clause. You have to be smart. Brian Poles actually is pretty smart, although he got in trouble a couple of times last offseason. I know Byron Pringle got arrested in the offseason. That caused a bit of a stir. you got to make sure you're drafting character as well as on-the-field performance and skill and athletic makeup. All of that is included. All the colleges say it's a holistic process. Kind of is here, too. If you're going to be drafting a player that you're going to invest serious money in and somebody who you want to be part of this team, a serious part of this team, I mean, Jalen Carter would be a building block. I just don't like this news. I'm not a fan of it. I don't appreciate it. And I hope it is genuinely false. Jalen Carter does good. Nobody's going to care. Maybe I'll end up forgetting about it, too. But at this point, it's not as if you even need a linebacker, too. The Bears spent tons of money on linebackers. I think now the focus should be the offensive line. And instead, we're going to be drafting somebody who got arrested and could be in still legal trouble. Could be in legal trouble. We don't know for sure, but we can assume. We could see how it plays out. I just don't like the Bears being a part of this or even being connected to his name. It's like politicians. Oh, you're connected to that guy? Uh Uh-oh, watch out. They're coming for you. And it's like the same here. You're connected to him. Oh, it's what's going on behind the scenes. A little bit of sleaziness. Don't really know. It's not a good look. It's not a good PR stance. It's not good for Ryan Poles to say we like him and we stand for him despite the actions that he committed. I'm okay with giving people second chances, but this is a pretty recent second chance. The Bears are going to do what they want to do, and if they're drafted based on pure talent, they probably may get Jalen Carter number nine, and that's awesome. He is a talented player. 
he will fit in well at linebacker, especially learning from some of these veterans the Bears just signed. It will be good. I think it'll work out really well player-wise and on the field-wise, and that's awesome. But off the field means something to me still. It may not, be, may not mean something to everybody else, but it still just means something to me. Inadvertently killing somebody, being arrested for it, and now all of a sudden being kind of out and in this legal limbo. I don't know if it really makes sense to all of a sudden bring him in and have it work and just put it behind everybody. And again, the Bears are not about this, which just confuses me a bit. The Bears are a class stand-up organization. They really are. We could criticize them about their hirings and their search for mediocrity and the joke of the franchise that they could be at times. But one thing that they do a great job of is vetting character. Making sure they don't draft the wrong guy, sign the wrong guy, trade the wrong guy. They do a great job at vetting character. They do a great job at reading into players. Hey, who is this guy off the field? Is he going to be a good ambassador for this team? Will he stand up, be a good PR guy for our team? Is this somebody these kids could look up to here in Chicago? All around the community, all around Chicago line, 8 million people. I don't know if Jalen Carter is that guy. And if he is, that's great, but he's going to have to really prove it and be better as a person, as a man. The -the off-the-field stuff deserved to be talked about more. Uh, Nobody's talking about it anymore. Nobody's bringing it up. It's as if everything passed away, and that's not the case. Something happened. Consequences are going to eventually be paid. I mean, I don't see how he could get out of this. And then, no matter what happens, you have that baggage, that off-the-field baggage that comes with them when you draft him. I just don't like this. My hope is that the Bears come to their senses, or my hope is really that somebody else takes him. Go ahead. You deal with it. Seattle, Detroit, I don't know, anybody who's going to be on the clock, take him. I don't even want him there at number nine. I want the Bears to draft an offensive tackle at that spot. They need that more anyway. So the Bears have done a great job at addressing linebacker through free agency. So on top of all the -the off-the-field stuff, even though Jalen Carter is a highly touted prospect, they don't even need him necessarily. They could do without Jalen Carter and be just fine this year. So why jump through hoops to sign somebody who has this much baggage? Why do that? Why jump through hoops to sign somebody with this much conflict off the field who could be providing such a distraction to a lot of people? That, to me, is the thing that makes no sense. I'm fine with him as a player. I think he's talented. I think he'd work great on this team. But I don't think it's a smart move for the franchise. And my hope is that the Bears come to their senses quick. (coughs) It's Sports Talk Chicago. John Zaglul here with you. John Meadows hanging with us, producing and directing. If you missed any of the show today, you can find it on podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and tune in. iHeartRadio, one of your favorite podcasting apps, hang with us. Comment as well, live YouTube feed, also on Twitch and Facebook. All of that is at Sports Talk Chicago. Got a couple of baseball roundups to get to before we wrap up shop here today. How about them Cubs? Not how about them Cowboys, guys, don't worry. How about them Cubs? How about them Cubs? They are doing great, relatively speaking. 
Hey, there's six and five. For 11 games. My socks are five and eight. We're going to get to them in a second. Cubs are six and five. Marcus Stroman is dealing. Justin Steele's dealing. Michael Fulmer's doing great at closer, which we all kind of assumed. Albert Azalea doing a good job of the bullpen. Boxberger, Mark Leiter Jr. And how about hitting? How about Nico Horner hitting 347? How about Dansby Swanson, who just got paid money, who I said maybe not won't be too good, but he's turned in a 400 batting average. And Ian Happ just got extended, hitting 282. I am liking this team. I am thoroughly impressed with what they bring to the table because what they bring are no expectations and what they end up doing is way higher than that. I love this team. I like this team more than the 2016 World Series team. There's no cockiness. There's no entitlement like Chris Bryant or Anthony Rizzo felt. There's just hardcore baseball. It's hardcore play. It's I'm going to give it my all every day, 100%. I have no ego. I have no pride. I'm playing my best. And it's turning into results for this team. I love it. By the way, FYI, Chris Bryant, uh, no home runs already through 15 games in Colorado. What a nice deal that the Cubs did not give him. And for those of you who advocated for it, you're not looking too good right now. I love this team. Cody Bellinger is not hitting too well, but we kind of expected that. Trey Mancini, also a 56 OPS plus. Yikes. And Eric Hosmer is at 87. It's funny how all these smaller signings, but hyped up signings aren't working out, and we kind of all expected those guys to not work out. Cody Bellinger is a huge waste of money. The last time we talked about the Cubs on this show, he was 0 for 7 to start his season. Actually, I take that back, 0 for 11. Hosmer was 0 for 7. And it turns out they really haven't done much since. Those two signings sucked. Now, the good thing is Hosmer didn't cost any money. San Diego's still paying his salary. But the Bellinger signing of $18 million, still don't get it. I'm waiting for him to show me something. I'm waiting for him to show everybody, hey, this is why I'm here. This is why I got paid. This is why I'm still a good quality Major League Baseball player. But we haven't seen that in years from him. And we're still not seeing it now. Gordon Whitmire came out a few weeks ago, and I'm going to tell this quote to everybody because it was so good. He said, well, if he couldn't figure out, figure it out before, how is he going to figure it out now? What's going to be different here? The answer, nothing. The answer, zero. There's been no figuring anything out. It's been a joke. The Cubs are being carried offensively I'm looking at the numbers right here by four people. That's it. Horner, Swanson, Wisdom, and Hap. Everybody else sucks. Hosmer's playing like crap. Jan Gomes has done nothing. Nick Madrigal is doing good, kind of, off the bench. I mean, this is just not good. This is not going to be sustainable offensively. They're pitching, but a couple of guys do well, like we said. Stroman and Steele, Fulmer. The bullpen's been great. They came back from seven runs down the other night against Seattle. That's unbelievable. The Cubs need more consistency and more depth in their lineup. The more depth they get, the better they're going to be. They have four starters with ERAs around three, even four. And if they can have one or two more guys actually hit the baseball in their lineup, this is going to be a playoff team. 
No doubt about it. Now they got four guys killing the baseball. Nico Horner's hitting 347. My goodness. And even Ian Happ, right where he should be at 282. It's impressive what the core is doing. And I think that's what's important, right? Horner, Swanson, Wisdom, Happ. That's the core of this team. Guys, you could certainly build around if you so choose. Well, Swanson, for sure, he's going to be here for seven more years. That's the positive for the Cubs. The negative is that everybody around them sucks. The rotation, too. You got guys you want to build around. Stroman, Steele, and then everybody else sucks. Tyone, who the Cubs paid three years and $36 billion, is a 7 ERA. But all these youngsters in the bullpen are doing great. Alzelay and Mark Leiter Jr. Michael Fulmer, who could be here for a while. He's only 30 years old. Feels like he's been playing for 10 years, which he might have been, but he's only 30. So there are a lot of good things, and I don't mean to bash the Cubs because when we get to the White Sox, it's going to be really bad. There are some good things that we're seeing, actually more good than bad. Unfortunately for them, the bad sticks out like a sore thumb. Because when these players are playing bad, it's not just, oh, they're about league average, like 100 ERA plus or 100 OPS plus. It's, no, these guys are really, really bad. Like, maybe they shouldn't even be in Major League Baseball. Bad. The Cubs had just more consistency and more of an even flow throughout their lineup and their starting rotation. They would literally be 8-3 and three right now. 9-2, and two even. They are not playing bad baseball at all. But that's going to be the key to their success all year long, and we're seeing it right now. We're seeing the patterns already develop. We know who's going to be hitting in the lineup. We know who's going to be pitching in the rotation. The question is, can all these other guys who are more depth pieces step up when the time's right and make something happen? If they do, that's going to be in the playoffs easily. They could do it. I could see it right now. They have enough of a core on the field, at the plate, and in the rotation, in the bullpen too, to make something happen, which is so encouraging. But... And these ancillary pieces around them pick up the slack, stop holding down the team, and at least play average baseball to push this team up to the top. That's the big question for the Cubs moving forward. And that's what we're seeing through these first 11-12 games. I'm impressed. I'm happy with what they've done. 6-5 and five is nothing to scoff at. I'd be celebrating if I were Jed Hoyer. I would be popping champagne already because this is a great way to start the year. The question is, can all these other guys improve? And that's... Up to them to decide. I hope they get better. I'd love to see this sort of team make the playoffs. They're they're rough. They're, you know, a ragtag group. Nobody expects them to do too much this year besides maybe 82 and 82, 81 and 81. But here's an opportunity for them to really make the playoffs with this team. I'm excited to see what they do. <clears throat> Sports Talk Chicago. John Zaglou here with you. John Meadows as well. Last mini segment for today. Going to talk about our good friends, the Chicago White Sox. How about a disappointment to start their season? You know, I heard the most ridiculous thing today on a different podcast. Not going to name it. We were talking, they were talking about Pedro Graffol and the White Sox manager and how it's not Tony LaRusa anymore. Thank God it's not Tony LaRusa. Well, I'll tell you what, the result's the freaking shame. Goes to show you. It doesn't matter 
for the manager is, which we knew from last year. It's all Tony LaRusso's fault. No, it isn't. This team sucks, and nobody's playing up to their potential. I should say few are playing up to their potential. Tim Anderson's hurt again. What a surprise. Luis Roberts, an MVP candidate. Yohan Mokata's doing good. Oscar Colas, eh. Gavin Sheets, the same. Elvis Andrews has a minus two OPS plus. Andrew Benintendi's down to a 72. Aloy Jimenez got hurt, and he wasn't playing well regardless. And in the rotation, the Sox have one good pitcher. That's Dylan Cease. Clevenger's done okay as a back-end guy, but Lance Lynn, Giolito, and Michael Kopech, all of ERAs above six. Yeah, that's not going to win you too many games, especially when those guys are supposed to be your anchors in the middle of the rotation. Lance Lynn's a quality pitcher. I don't know what happened to him. Last year he sucked, and this year, he, this year he's sucking again. Giolito hasn't been good in three years. Kopech had an encouraging start last time around, but he got rocked his first start. <clears throat> and their bullpen's all over the place, too. Jake Diekman in ADRA, Kendall Graveman at six. Ronaldo Lopez, who's supposed to be closing while Liam Hendricks is recovering from cancer, has a 6.35 ERA. Joe Kelly, who's down the IL, had a 10 ERA before he got hurt. This is why the Sox are losing. This is why they're 5-8. It had nothing to do with the manager. Famous radio station here in Chicago did a whole segment the other day on the Sox are still suffering from Tony La Russa. Like they've gone into habits because La Russa indoctrinated them so much. you got to be kidding me. That goes to show you you're a PR arm for the team. Really? We're going to go back to the Tony La Russa narrative and say because of Tony La Russa's influence, they're still not playing well. How dumb could you be? No. They're just not playing well. They're just not performing. And who's that on? Pedro Grafone? I didn't hear anybody call for his firing yet. I didn't hear anybody say it's Pedro Grafone's fault. He's horrible. He's like Tony. He's this and that. No one said anything. Now it's, oh, well, these players aren't playing well. Why not? Where was this discourse last year? Where were these conversations a couple of months ago? Right. No one wants to say that. Everybody stood behind getting the old man out of town, old man Tony, who was falling asleep on the bench. Well, you know what? Tony LaRusso knows a little bit about baseball, maybe just a little bit more than you and me. You're going to blame him and put all the problems on him when there's a new manager in town and the team is still floundering around 500. In fact, they're three games under as of this taping. Stop pointing the finger at somebody who's been gone now for six months and start pointing the finger at the players who aren't performing. There are few that are, and they deserve credit. Luis Robert, again, MVP candidate right now, Luis Robert. Dylan Shee, Cy Young Award candidate. Yohan Mokata is doing good. Michael Kopech had an encouraging start last time around. But everybody else deserves some sort of criticism. And Mike Clevenger, I should say, has been pleasantly surprising. 2-0, 3-5 ERA, kind of what we expected. That's fine. But everybody's getting hurt. Albus Andrews is just not hitting at all. And Gavin Cheese and Oscar Colas, who are part of this lineup, who are in the lineup every day, are literally league average hitters. 98 OPS pluses for the both of them. That's not going to get it done. 
and what do you know, Aloy Manage is hurt again. We've said for years, make him a DH. He always gets hurt. And now he's hurt again. And he was a horrible defensive right fielder or left fielder or center fielder. Wherever they put him, he sucked. And then he kept getting hurt. And now he's hurt again. And when he comes back, they better not put him out in the outfield. Play DH, dude. Stay there. Hit the baseball. Do what you know how to do sometimes. And be okay. But no, the Sox are losing because Tony La Russa is still haunting them to this day. Right. Okay. Isn't that the most ridiculous argument that you've ever heard? A former manager has caused the current team, with a new manager, to go 5-8 and eight to start the season. It's the former manager's fault. And how long are you going to milk the same narrative? How long are you going to keep going back to the same thing over and over and over again for really no reason? I mean, it gets to a point where there has to be a personal vendetta. I will admit I have a personal vendetta with Matt Nagy. I do. I'll say it right now. That's why I bring it up. But we all know that. We're okay with that. Okay? These other hosts, then, must have a personal vendetta with Tony La Russa. But see, here's the thing. It's not Matt Nagy's fault that the Bears went 3-14 and 14 this past season. They were tanking. Justin Fields was growing. There was no mention of Matt Nagy unless Mitch Trubisky news came up, and we kind of talked about it. That was it. There's no reason for Tony LaRusso's name to come up right now. None. New manager, new team. There is no reason for Tony LaRusso to be blamed for anything at this point. He's probably sitting at home watching these games or traveling, whatever he's doing. 79 years old. But if we sunk that low, we're going to blame some senior citizen, some 79-year-old man who has not been around the team in six months for their demise with a new manager? How ridiculous does that sound? That's insane. But yet, it's being peddled by everybody. All of your favorite mainstream media outlets are going to continue to peddle the same narrative. And it's tired, and it's old, and it's boring. Where are the critics of those people spreading these falsehoods? I don't know. It just frustrates me because this team has its own internal problems that need to be worked out. They got to hit better. They got to pitch better. You can't have three superstars and then everybody else play like crap, just like the Cubs. At least the Cubs, though, have better depth even today than the White Sox, which is crazy, but it's true. And that's why they're 6-5. and five. That's why the White Sox are 5-8. and eight. The Cubs have better depth today, here in mid-April, than the White Sox. And the White Sox were the more hyped-up team. With a new manager, meaning they have a better chance of winning the World Series, winning the division, making the playoffs, psych. No, they don't, because the players still suck. Which is what everybody said last year, what everybody should have been saying last year, too. The Sox went 81-81 and 81 in 2022 because nobody performed and everybody was hurt. And here we are today, 2023, very few are performing, a lot of people are hurt, and everybody else sucks. No wonder why there's a problem. No wonder why nobody's winning. But depending on who you talk to, maybe it's Tony LaRusso's fault, after all. Any comments on that? Oh, the White Sox owner is cheap. Well, 
They do have the highest payroll that they've ever had in uh, franchise history. They've had that the past two years, for what that's worth. I understand they're cheaper, but I'll tell you what, okay, and I really don't like that argument, actually, because they're still spending money, and they have the players. They've, they've drafted. They've built all these guys up, and no one's really saying anything about Jerry Reinsdorf being cheap. Everyone's saying it's Tony LaRusse's fault, Right? So which is it? Is the owner cheap? Is it Tony's fault? Is it everybody but Rick Hahn and Pedro Grafol? And these players? Apparently the players get no blame in this? Come on, guys. I don't think so. I think there's been, unfortunately, an agenda surrounding Tony LaRusa, surrounding how this team's being covered. And unfortunately, when it gets to that point, you're blaming the wrong people and you sound dumb. I mean, deep down, really think about this here. I mean, I'm not even, there's no agenda for me. I'm just spitting the truth here. How could a manager who's been away from the team from six months cause them now to be five and eight? He's not been on the bench. He's not been in the locker room. He's not been in players meetings or strategy meetings. He's been just gone from the team. How is he to blame for what's going on today? How is he the scapegoat still? What has he done to deserve that title? If anybody can answer any of those questions, put them in the comments, or if you're watching the replay, let me know. I don't think anybody could justify it. I think it's just a hit campaign and a way to make the White Sox still look good or, you know, cover for people in the organization, whatever it is. The fact is, Pedro Grafol, who I like as a person, is not doing it right now as a manager. That could change. And I want to give him the benefit of the doubt we're 13 games in. Let's wait till game 80 to decide how good he really is. But right now, he's not getting it done. These players are not getting it done either. There are three or four who are overperforming, and everybody else is underperforming. Like the Cubs, the White Sox key to success is going to be depth. You can't have four guys who are good, then everybody else sucks. Like the Cubs, you can't have six guys who are good, or seven, and have everybody else suck. So the good thing is both these issues for both teams are correctable. That's the encouraging part. The problem I have is, will they be done? And the problem I have with the White Sox specifically is, stop talking about Tony. He's gone. It's over. He's a Hall of Famer, and he's off the team. Shut up about Tony LaBrusa. Stop saying it's his fault, or he's to blame, or there's a problem. It's not him. Move on, people. Hard to hear, but it's true. Move on. Let's talk about Pedro Grafol. Let's talk about this team. Let's talk about why they're not winning. Let's not blame this on a manager who hasn't been around the team in six months. Okay? And end of rant. <laughs> Please do not tell me it's Tony's fault. Okay? Do yourself a favor. Do myself a favor, too. Do all of us a favor here. It's not Tony's fault. I mean, how do you even get to that point? But apparently, educated people, legit people, have said that. And it's been highly publicized all over social media throughout the week, and I've seen it. And I was waiting and rearing for the opportunity to come on here and explain my side of the story, because that's ridiculous. It's not Tony. And between me, you and me, come close, it never was. It never was Tony's fault. But that's a discussion for another day. At that point, I think we're good to close up shop here today. We appreciate everybody tuning in. Sean Merriman was unbelievable. Um, So if you have an opportunity and you missed part of the show, 
or when I go back on podcast for listening to the audio, go back. We're going to cut up clips. We're going to make sure we post that full interview with Sean. He was amazing. Please go back and listen to it. It was awesome. Appreciate all of you tuning in. Follow us at John Z Sports all over social media at Sports Talk Chicago as well. Subscribe to the video or to the YouTube page. Over 18,100 subscribers. Oh, and by the way, we're going to have some really cool news coming up soon too. Um, Like huge news. I can announce it now. Going to be a little bit coy about it, but it is coming in the next couple of weeks and it's going to rock the Chicago sports media landscape and also this channel and the content that you're going to be consuming on this channel. Hint, it won't be just me making content here now. More to come on that in the next couple of weeks. Appreciate all of you tuning in. Big thank you to John Meadows, directing and producing. Make sure everything worked out behind the scenes. We will have a show for you Sunday, so don't miss that. More rants expected and promised. And until next time, so long, everyone.